To tell the honest truth, from the point of coming to the, this country and then till the age of um, 20, I didn't acknowledge being sad. It wasn't until being at dance school and we did this module called Ideas in Arts and all of the examples of artists from the 1900s to current were of white people and I didn't feel represented and then I felt a calling to look back at Jamaica. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. In this episode, I speak with Akeem Toussaint-Buck, a Jamaican artist and performer whose show Windows of Displacement will run on August 12th and 13th at the festival. We talked about the good times, the not-so-good times, the rocky road to British citizenship, and how dance became Akeem's survival tool. My name is Akeem Toussaint-Buck, and I am an immigrant. Welcome to the show. Yay! Akeem. Thank you. <laughs> so, Akeem, you are difficult to categorize. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Like yeah. looking from the outside, because I, I only met you just now, I sort of go, okay, so he's, a, he's an all round kind of dance music artist, cool guy. Nice. <laughs> um, like but it. what do you. Yeah, what, what do, do I do? Like, I say I'm an interdisciplinary performer and maker. Okay. Yeah. And if they say... Say, what is that? <laughs> then I go, well, dance, I, the way I see it, there is a ecosystem of my creativity. Dance is in the middle. And then poetry, live performance, film, uh, music, whether sometimes that's vocal improvisation, sometimes that's, yeah, singing, all stem from that. So, so sometimes support the dance. And at the same time, sometimes the dance changes, the, the centre changes. Sometimes it's a different thing at the centre of the ecosystem. So let's go back to your origin story. Yes. Like where, tell me, tell me about your parents. Both my parents are Jamaican. They were born and bred in Jamaica. My mom. Which part of Jamaica? Uh, Hanover. Like way on the other side to Kingston. So Montego Bay, Negril, Sav, Ocho Rios, Westmoreland. That's my zone, my mm. area. Luce, mm. I was born in Lucy. And I went to Lucy Prep, Lucy Preparatory School, so prep school, primary school. My dad grew up in Orange Bay. He went to Green Island High School. He was like the top boy in everything. Oh, really? He was a runner and he was also really smart. You know, he told me, you know, when teachers weren't in the class, he'd be the one to teach the class. <laughs> I'm like, what? He could have been like the Usain Bolt of his time. There was an opportunity to run in college. But my grandfather at the time just wasn't really aware of how those opportunities work. So he didn't let him do it. Mm. He was like, my grandfather at the time was all about, you know, you go to work, you make money. So, you know, at 16, he got sent to, to work in hotels and he bought the first refrigerator in the, in the household. That's a story my dad tells me a lot. My mother, on the other hand, she was born in Westmoreland to quite, again, a very rural, a family in a very rural space. But then she ended up being adopted by my grand-aunt, 
who I also call grandma. Mm-hmm. And my grand-aunt lives in Lucy, which is a town. It's more of a, it's not a capital, it's more of a, not even a cosmopolitan town. It's, it's, it's just more built up. It's just more built up, yeah. more modern. Yeah. So she's a nurse. So she got, you know, really nice house. So that's where I was born. And I mm-hmm. grew up for the first 10 years of my life in that house. Okay. Yeah. How did your parents meet? How did they meet? I think it was at a hotel. Because, my, yeah, my dad used to work in hotels a lot, in a hotel a lot. And my mom used to make clothes. My mom makes clothes. Uh-huh. She's a seamstress. Um, she designs my costumes now. She used to make clothes for cross-dressers in Jamaica because you know, in certain mm. hotels they'd be part of the entertainment, drag queens and such. She used to make clothes for the air hostess, people who work in like airplanes and stuff. She used to make their uniforms. Oh, she did everybody's clothes, yeah. everybody's clothes. So I think she did some work clothes for him. Tell me a little bit about your 10 years in Jamaica when you were... It was incredible. That 10 years have defined the person that I am today. There are certain ways that I carry myself in the world that I directly connect to Jamaica. Funnily enough, with being my partner now, those are the things, sometimes those are the things that um, we have clashes with because you know, if you're in a very conservative environment, or an environment that historically has conservativeness to it, mm-hmm. you know, the British politeness and so yeah. on and so forth, there are certain things you don't know you're allowed to do. Whereas in Jamaica, it's not like that. You say what you feel, you do what you feel. If it's the wrong thing, someone will tell you. If it's not the wrong thing, then you're all good. If you want to be included in something, you just go over and be included. You, yeah. don't, you don't see a party happening and then think, oh, I can't join that party. Oh, uh, they didn't invite me. <laughs> yeah, or they didn't invite me. You go join the party. You know, there's a sound system on the street. Yeah. No, there's, there's no, there's no, it's no, it's no blockage. Let's go. Let's happen. Being in the UK, I've learned about the existence of a more reserved way of being. Mm-hmm. And also sarcasm. <laughs> I don't know, in Jamaica, people just tell it how it is. People just say how it is, say how you feel. People talk to people. People. Just... Oh, you got very fat, yeah. Yeah, literally, yeah. Some people just, girl, you look good. Or, man, don't talk to me. Who are you talking to? You know, yeah. women and men are like, you know, people come back at each other. It's not like, oh, you're catcalling me. You know, it's not like that. There isn't this censorship of yourself and your expression. If you don't like it, then you just say, hey, don't be calling me like that. Don't be calling my name like that. I ain't no sweetheart. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, it just happens. And and then before you know it, those two people might just end up laughing. Because they'll be yeah. like, oh, girl, I'm just joking. I'm just yeah. saying, oh, you, you look good. What else am I supposed to say? And she's like, well, you could just ask me my name. You know, stuff like that can happen. And there's it's it's accepted. Sarcasm you mentioned. What do you mean by that? Like... <laughs> And even my daughter's doing it. Oh, really? She goes, look at his face, Daddy. <laughs> What's the face for the podcast this, listeners? This, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very serious like deadpan face. Like a poker face. face type of... Very, yeah, poker yeah. face. And I'm like, how does she know that this is funny? How, does she, how has she learned this type of humour already? I wasn't so aware of sarcasm in Jamaica because it was... It's just not used as much mm. in the way that it's used here. It's, it's used so much here in like a satire humour yeah. or deadpan humour. In Jamaica, it's very much in your, like, this is what it is. This is funny. Yeah, there's, funny. Not, there's not really dry wit. Guess, no, in not as much. There is, but it's still... It's more in your face kind yeah. of humor, isn't and, it? Yeah, and if there is, it's still entwined in certain archetypes that are, are very much Jamaican. For instance, you know, you have the wise old man who lives up in the hills. And they usually have quite a humor that isn't very direct in your face it's quite like cryptic. layered yeah, yeah layered yeah, and cryptic yeah. and you're like what is he talking about and then before you know everyone's laughing jamaican plays are incredible 
Well, it's one of the contexts in a Jamaican play, there's always a person who is a cross-dresser. And that's one of the only places where that is like accepted. In terms of like everyday life, Jamaica's crazy homophobic. Is it kind of like the pantomime dame? I guess, in a yeah, way. in a way, yeah, yeah, you so see, and, and, yeah. It's quite similar, because, yeah. you know, those those pantos have been going on for centuries, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. And it was, there was always a guy dressed as a woman. Yes, there's <laughs> always that. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and it's but very, are they, are they yeah. objects of, of humour? Yes. Yes, okay, yes. so they're the kind of joker. Or the, absolutely, yeah. yeah, the very um, melodramatic, over-the-top character. He's always the guy who's dressed like a woman. Interesting. And, and he always dances like, mm. like a woman dances. And it's like, what the? Is that a man dancing like that? What? You know, and the people are going crazy. Right. Like, how good he can do it. Okay. But if he was ever in the real world, like, hey, what are you doing? You know. Oh. Different uh, perspective. Then. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I honestly, those first 10 years of my life, you know, being in the sun, <laughs> being in the warmth. <laughs> yeah. And the music the food, the practices, there's certain practices that still affects my work today. You know, I just made a, a piece called Souls and Cells and within it we make a shrine. And I suddenly remembered, oh yeah, we used to do this at school mm. in Jamaica. When, around harvest time, we'd get the fruits, you'd get different um, leaves and stuff and they'd put it together to create a shrine to kind of celebrate the harvest time. Yeah. And, and this is what we've got today. So inside the piece, we've, we create a, a mandala shrine with fruits, with salt, stone, flowers, a statue. It's beautiful. It's yeah. really beautiful. I love it. So, uh, so tell me what brought you to the UK then? What happened? My mom moved. I remember a conversation with her and a family friend who came from England saying, yeah, it was really nice, you know, there's opportunities, there's things you can find yourself to do and so on and so forth. And I think she, she really wanted to make something of herself even though, you know, life in Jamaica wasn't really difficult, but you feel a glass ceiling coming from where we came from, the part of the island where we work, because everything is in Kingston, everything's in the capital. And also her, the lady, you know, my, my grand-aunt who raised her, used to come to England quite a bit. So she felt a connection to the, to the place, so she came. And I'd say we were like lower middle class in Jamaica. When we moved here, we were lower working class. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's the change. First, we were embarking okay. for the first year and a half. And that was the, yeah, that was tough. That was really tough, living on this estate. Were you sad to leave Jamaica? To tell the honest truth, from, from the point of coming to the, this country and then till the age of 20, I didn't acknowledge being sad. It wasn't until being at dance school and we did this module called Ideas in Arts and all of the examples of, of artists from the 1900s to current were of white people and I didn't feel represented. And then I felt a calling to look back at Jamaica. So I, I got obsessed about Bob Marley. Because okay. I totally, I also totally forgot my dad's obsessed with Bob Marley and, yeah. and has always fed me Bob Marley things from a young age. So then when I got obsessed with Bob Marley in that time, I realized all this stuff came up. It was like I started to heal. And then, yeah, heal from missing home, missing my friends, missing, the food, the, the smells, the taste, the sounds of music, bass, everywhere, mm. you know. Everything suddenly came back to me in that time. Yeah, I guess between 10 and 20, you're just busy adapting, aren't you? Literally. Yeah, you're just going, how do I make this work? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Literally that. And, yeah. and finding your feet in this new environment, finding yourself in this new environment. You know, I've always had dance in my life. 
from Jamaica, being in Jamaica, but dance was never a survival mechanism or a survival tool. When I came here, dance became a survival tool because I, I start talking to someone, they start talking about my accent. You know, so I don't want to do that all the time. So I remember the first two weeks of high school in when I got to Leeds and I started going to Round A High, I'd started to dance on the playground. Instead of talking to people, I'd just dance because I saw two guys on the playground dancing. I was like, oh, finally, yeah. <laughs> people I can speak a language that doesn't put me up outside of. That's so interesting that it was the response to, you know, because a lot of immigrants say that here, don't they? As soon as you open your mouth, someone's going, where are you from? Yeah, you, you get sick of it. You have to explain yourself. Yeah, every yeah. time, all yeah. the time. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. and so, guys used to take the piss out of me because in Jamaica, I was accustomed to you bring your school books with you. So I used to bring my school books with me to, to, to high school and I had an atlas in my bag. I remember this so like vividly. It was like someone asked me, what have you got in your bag? And, and the way I said it was really funny to them. I was like, I don't know, I sounded American. Right. So for like, like the whole term, that was a joke. I have an atlas in my bag. And I'm just like, great, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. And, and even before that, so even like, luckily when I was embarking and I started primary school, the teacher I had, Miss Gale, I still remember her name to this day. She was a massive Michael Jackson fan. So every Friday we'd watch Michael Jackson music videos. That was home for me because yeah. I was a massive Michael Jackson fan because Michael Jackson's the entertainer of the century. Yeah. I was so lucky. There was these little things that helped me to not recognize that I was sad because it, little things reminded me of home. And she was also, you know, dual heritage. So she was half Jamaican, half British. So we had some kind of connection. It was really nice to have her as a teacher. When you and your mum arrived here, was it a bonding experience for you both to go through that together? In some ways, definitely. And that thing, that dynamic that happens where the, the, there's, there's a point where situations start to emerge where the child parents the parent, that happened at times. Because I have a natural resilience in me that I think I've inherited from my dad. So even though he's not constantly around, that element of his personality I brought into my mom's world. So in days where she's just like, I'm sick of it, I've had enough, so hard. I'm like, it's gonna be all right. And did you find, because often when that happens, when the child becomes the parent in some respects, mm. the child kind of hides their anxieties from the parents yeah. and that kind of thing, was that what happened? Yeah, there's been moments, it's funny, I was talking about the moment where the pin dropped for me as an adult and I realized I did that. Because for me, in my experience, I've, internalized quite a lot but didn't realize I was doing it until probably like a decade later some experience takes place and it's like I see my whole life flash before my eyes and I'm like oh my god I actually feel like this inside so it was at a uh, singing retreat and I was talking about how the voice just helps you to release trauma mm. and to connect it to deeper parts of yourself and I'm in this singing retreat and everyone's singing and crying and all this stuff, and I'm like, why is everyone crying? What's going on with these people? So I then take this role of trying to hold it all together for people. And then someone puts their hand on my back to, to kind of support me. And then I start crying because that gave me the permission to let go. Yeah. And then the pin dropped for me. Really? Oh yeah, when I was 12, I was told I'm now the man of the house. Oh, I felt like I had to hold stuff together. That's why I didn't ask for much at Christmas because I saw my mom working two jobs and trying to like manage all this stuff. So I just, I just got on with it, Yeah. you know? And being in high school and hearing kids talk about all these holidays they're going on for summer holidays. And I'm just like, can't talk about that because 
I've got this whole situation going on with my passport, I can't go anywhere. Um, I know that you had a bit of a struggle with your immigration status, is that...? Yeah, in terms of, you know, you get the indefinite leave to remain. When you came, what did you have? You had a visitor visa or something? Or I was just here. I, yeah. I, I, didn't, I don't think we were completely um, legal. What? No, <laughs> I mean, it happens a lot. Because right? it happens, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I, I was meant to leave. I really was. But I'm a, mama's, I'm a mummy's boy, yeah. you know? So I was like, I'm not leaving my mom again. Like, no, I had six crazy. months without her in Jamaica, and it was horrible. Mm. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. When I look back now, I realise it wasn't that bad. But I was, I'm a child. Yeah, you miss your mum. I miss my mum. Yeah. And so you came, did your mum come with a work visa? Or? She came, I think, yeah, with a work visa. And then she became a student as well. Oh, uh, okay. Because she wanted to officiate her, her yeah. skills in, in making able, clothes. Yeah, get accredited here and all exactly. that. Exactly. And so, yeah. and you were her dependent, I guess. Yes. As part of that visa. And then at some point, you went to regularise your status? or Yeah, yeah. She, she met someone... She fell in love, you know, they have a relationship for a couple for a while and then they got married and then that helped with, luckily that helped with everything else, you know, so we, we, we got an indefinite leave to remain. But the thing with an indefinite leave to remain is you're still not eligible for student finance. Mm. You're still not eligible for so many things. Because you have to get the citizenship. Yes. Yeah. So did you not know that? I had no clue. No. I didn't know about those things no. at all. I, I mean, just, who does? And only, yeah. People only know when it hits them. When it hits them. Yeah. When, yeah, exactly. No, no, because I, I, um, I interviewed some of the podcast, actually, who got into all these amazing universities. She was an awesome student. And then she went to fill out the forms and she was like, oh, hang on. I can't. This doesn't apply. Well, I don't fit here. What? You know, yeah. and she ha couldn't go. Yeah, I, I had a similar situation. And, and the board of the school, they advised that I take a year out. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So what school was this? Sorry. This is Northern School of Contemporary Dance. Okay. So I just, I just worked. I worked at the school. I worked weekends. And I also was, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I was a good student. You know, I was always, kept my grades high. I was all, my attendance was always on point. I was always getting chosen to be in other people's work and do things inside school and outside school. So the principal wrote a letter to the governors to give me a fee waiver. So they waivered a portion of my fee and I, I paid a lot of it. I, you know, myself and my mom worked really hard together to pay some of it. And that, this was before it was nine grand a year. This yeah. was when it was 3,000. Okay, but still. I, couldn't get a, I didn't get a student loan, I didn't get anything. But the school, the principal again, she set up this thing called broke but brilliant because I wasn't the only person in my year who had a situation like this. There were other people from European countries even who yeah. had some kind of weird situation where they couldn't get support. And people donated to it and paid the rest of my school fee. It was honestly- Shout out, shout out to them. Shout out to them. You know, awesome. But good, good for you for standing your ground as well and going- Yeah, nah. I was adamant that I've found what I want to do with my life. I'm not going to let go of it. Now, because I don't know, you know, I take a year out, what am I, you know, what would happen in that yeah. year out, you know? Yeah, exactly. You never know. I, in that time, I was studying my life in the UK test, and I did my life in the UK test. And then I, I, I applied for the citizenship after I graduated, because I needed money to do it. Yeah. So this, again, this is another thing, like, if I was, for instance, if I was a British citizen beforehand, I would have done five years. Because I would have, I would have went and auditioned for an apprenticeship or auditioned for the school's company, or something. But because I wasn't a citizen, and because of what I've, I've, my experience, I just went through. Cash rules everything around me. 
Kareem get the money, dollar dollar bill, y'all. To quote Wu Tang Clan. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna get a job. I'm gonna just go get work and save my money and sort out this citizenship thing. And that's what I did. I saw you talk about this in a video that was online, and you said that when you actually went to the interview, you you broke down in tears. I literally talked about this yesterday in a really? Q, in a Q and A. Yeah, oh I did because they asked me how was your journey here today. <laughs> yeah. For me, that's a loaded question to an immigrant. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Because it's not my journey here today. It's my journey here since the age of 10. Yeah. To be seen as a normal human being in front of your system. That's ridiculous. I didn't ask to be born. I did not come here and pay for oxygen. So why do I have to pay for a piece of paper to justify a piece of paper with the Queen's speech in the yeah, inside? And do a stupid thingy. test. And do a stupid test that most of the people who are born here don't know yeah. all the answers for. Yeah. The Queen owns all the swans. It's true. She does. Yeah, she does. So what happened to you in that moment? What do you think it was? You know when people talk about how their life flashed before their eyes? My, I had that experience. My life flashed before my eyes and all I felt was anger and frustration. Mm -hmm. So I just started to cry. I just broke down because I'm not going to punch this guy in his face. It's not his fault. Mm. He's just doing his job, asking his questions. But for me, I just want to get this thing done and get out of here because I don't like this building. I don't like what this organization represents. I've gone through all this stuff. I haven't felt human. I went through the process of naturalization. Mm -hmm. you know, which, yeah. Listen to that word. How can you naturalize something that is already from the natural world? <laughs> so this process isn't natural. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a paradox. Hi listeners, just a reminder that Akeem's show Windows of Displacement is on August 12th and 13th at the Edinburgh International Festival. Booking details are all in the show notes. Please subscribe, rate, recommend this podcast to people in your life. There are more episodes in this special Edinburgh International Festival season to come and there is a whole back catalogue from season one to enjoy. Okay, back to the conversation. When you were a boy in Jamaica, you must have had some understanding of what colonialism was this is why this is no what, how it is no not, okay. not like completely oblivious but it wasn't so present i'll say i always was interested in and inquired about certain things but i didn't know like the word colonialism right. or imperialism and that that's the reason okay that came later from coming to england and then really getting a wider picture because Again, in Jamaica, there are elderly people who call England the mother country because of the legacy of empire. And I remember I've met a lot of sort of older Jamaican women who are very, um, I don't know if it's deferential, but they admire the Queen. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the, mon the monarchy and the, yes. the royal family. I, don't, I can't quite get my head around that. It I is <laughs> strange. I don't yeah. get it. I don't get it either. Okay. But again, for instance, in Jamaica, the first two leaders of the two main political parties were mixed race guys you mm. know? so so there was there's always been this class thing in jamaica as well the lighter your skin the better you can work in a bank if you speak the queen's english you can work in a bank i went to a prep school i went to a private school and we did not speak patois in class you weren't allowed you had to answer the teacher in proper english you had to speak in proper english all the time so everything was designed in a way to re try and reflect the empire 
Okay, so you are a British citizen now. Yes, I am. <laughs> and, um, Whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you value most about that? Um, some sense of freedom, because there's this, this pressure to attain something is, isn't there anymore, which yeah. has been great to not live like that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm still pissed off about it because no one should have to ever feel like that and have to go through stuff like that. I just, I, just, I just don't get it. I still can't comprehend the fact that we do this to each other. You know, and then this whole asylum seeker thing that's going on and they're, they're creating um, detention centers, essentially, in Rwanda for UK asylum people because mm. they don't want to keep people here. So I don't know. I don't know. Literally, it's just a book that keeps the government off my back. This might seem like a strange question, but how is your, how's your mental health? It's not a strange question because it's all related. Yeah. And, and I've been coming to the realisation of that and to accepting that because I think I have the ability to sometimes avoid... Like I just get on with it. I've got things to do, so let me just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm starting to more and more find space to actually sit and allow myself to feel. And through my work, through creating art and stuff, there's healing processes that take place. And through being in certain projects as well, you know, I was in a project last year called Boy Breaking Glass by Alessandra, Alessandra Suto, uh, amazing choreographer. And it's all about people of the African diaspora, people of African heritage. And yeah, it's all about there's being a glass ceiling and you're not able to break out of it. And that could mean so many things. It could mean the perceptions that society has of you. It could mean the expectation that is already put on you and, and the, the, the your finishing line and starting line being somewhere else to everybody else's. And I've kind of, I don't want to say come to terms with that fact because that's so sad. Because I haven't come to terms with it. I've come to find a better dance with it so that my mental health doesn't feel as bad. I'm sick of fighting and I feel like I've always been, since being in this country, it's felt like a fight. Um, whether it's fighting with different aspects of myself, whether it's fighting with systems, whether it's fight, actually fighting with people. Since becoming a professional performer, it's been fighting with venues because of the type of work that I want to make versus the type of work they think I should make versus the type of work that they think is okay to be seen by their audiences. And do you think that's a British industry thing? What do you think that is? I think it's a British industry thing. Since the George Floyd incident, it's changed a bit. It's okay. changed. I definitely recognise the change. But it shouldn't take that. <laughs> it shouldn't take that. So at the same time, I'm very aware of trends mm -hmm. and the fact that people will probably just want things because it's a trend. And so that makes me try and step back and look at the bigger picture and be like, okay, if it's just a trend, I can play this game for a while. But as I do that, what do I do that creates a long lasting impact rather than I'm going to play in the trend and also just happen and then I'm gone? No. And that's why I'm really proud of the fact that I made this work. Um, and that helps my mental health. Having family helps my mental health. 
there was a period where, yeah, right before lockdown, where Naira was pretty much born the year before. Mm. So I was just under a lot of pressure and stress because I was like, oh my God, I'm a father and I do art and it's just not helping. Oh no. <laughs> and now I'm finding more of a balance with that. I think also because my career kind of started opening up more doors and mm. things happened. There was a point, I remember as a teenager and I was going through the whole thing of, yeah, not being a citizen and having to be the kid who works on the weekends, works in the really evenings. really hustle, basically. Yeah, I remember one weekend, just like after working my shift, promoting for some club, I just got really drunk and I was just like shouting at the sky. I feel like that was like one of my lowest moments because I just felt so sad and frustrated. And that feeling can come back sometimes, but it doesn't get as bad as that. And do you remember what you were shouting at the sky? Uh, or were you too drunk? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I'm sick of it, man. I'm done. Like, I'm finished. Just like, if, if it's now, just take me, you know? Suicidal, like, yeah, I guess suicidal stuff come and go still. It comes, I will just let it out or I'll say something, I'll write a poem or something, and then it's like, it's gone. And because I always know that I will never do, I will never take my own life because there's so much to live for. And I know there's so much to live for. But in those moments where I just feel like, oh, I just be like, okay, is it finished now? Is it going to end now? Because I'm here, I'm ready, let's go. Thanks for sharing that. That's not easy to talk about. I wasn't sure about this, but maybe you just sort of answered the question. Have you, have you ever doubted yourself as an artist? Oh yeah, all the time, yeah. doubt myself right now. That, that is a constant dance. It's weird, because I don't doubt my content. I don't doubt what I have to give to the world. What I doubt, I don't trust people. <laughs> I was literally saying this to my partner the other day, that I just, I don't like putting on events myself. I don't like booking a space promoting it oh god it's the worst it's the worst thing because you then have to trust audiences and participants and sometimes people won't turn up to stuff yeah sometimes they'll buy the ticket and they still won't show up why if everyone does that that's why know. that's why producers get paid so much exactly <laughs> they get to worry about it all yeah the doubt's there sometimes the doubts are more about how it will be received or whether, you know, people will actually engage yeah, with it. Yeah, engage with it. Do they want to come to this thing? Are they going to come? And yeah. Like I was saying before George Floyd, trying to sell windows of displacement to people felt risky. Some theatres just wouldn't promote it. Even if they're booked it, they wouldn't promote it. Or they'd just say, oh, we don't think our audiences can connect to that. Or they'll only just invite black people. Tell me about windows of displacement. Windows of Displacement is a story of my migration from Jamaica to England and I use that experience to contextualise the relationship between colony and post-colony. And I also talk about other um, experiences of displacement, whether it's economic via our technological advances and the Congo and more uh, modern things, so like the asylum seeker situation with Calais. Okay, so it's sort of um, not just your own story. No, but it's, it's not just, It's yeah. saying my story is part of a bigger story exactly. of displacement. Exactly, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's the root of it all. Right. That's the premise. Great, yeah. and there's a lot of dance in it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm constantly dancing, speaking, singing, like the whole hour, just pouring with sweat by the end. <laughs> and what should audiences expect? <laughs> expect to laugh. 
surprisingly, people laugh quite a lot. And it, I think it's because of the way that, I, again, it's the way I deal with pain. Mm. I deal with pain by laughing. Even my partner is like, why are you laughing? It's not funny. And I'm like, I don't know. This is just how I deal with pain. <laughs> um, how's your mum? She's good. She's really good. She went to Paris the other day. Lovely. Yeah, I know. Like, like she didn't do her passport. She kept an indefinite leave for a longer okay. period. Okay. So she's only recently got her citizenship. So then to be able to go to Paris for even for a couple of days yeah. was massive for her. What did she do? She went, her friend who lives in America came here to visit. So both of them just went there for together a weekend, for a weekend yeah. to just enjoy Paris. Yeah, sightseeing. Yeah, all of that. Pastries, yeah, all yeah, to yeah. be a tourist. Yeah, why not? In Paris. Good for yes, her. good for her, man. I was so happy. And, and, is, and is, she, is she glad she came here? She is glad she came to England because of what I've, not, well, not just me, like, because she also took, after my brother and myself came over and my brother went back and stuff, my cousin came, my eldest cousin, and she's like really created a life for herself. Mm. You know, she has a child. So my mom's really happy because of the implications of, of her being here. The knock-on effect, rather, of her being here and what she's been able to provide for us. In terms of for herself, I feel like there's still some uncertainty. But, yeah, it, it's working out at the same time. I really feel like there's a balance balance but the manifestation of the fruits of your labor in a sense taking place yeah a lot, i mean a lot of immigrants do say that they are the real beneficiaries of the journeys their parents made absolutely yeah because you know she came over here she wanted to be a student like because she wanted to study and get proper qualifications for being a seamstress but you know having to make money on top of that plus she felt a little bit um patronized by the course because she already knew she already said she's self-taught so she taught herself loads of the stuff that they were teaching and teaching at a very slower pace for mm. her skill set even though she's super dyslexic but in terms of sewing she knows her stuff she knows her stuff beautiful to watch and so she had to sort of get a qualification here is that right Work. not not with sewing with oh, sewing okay. she's still just doing it independently she left the college because she had to work yeah but through word of mouth people find out that she does what she does and and then her main work is like taking people care of elderly and stuff like that oh, she was okay. a cleaner she did all this stuff and now it's mainly taking care of um, elderly people on their way out She's like a in in home carer. Yeah, so she has a specific elderly person that she takes care of through this agency. That's amazing. And work. at the same time, she makes costumes for her shows. And have you gone back and forth to Jamaica? Yeah, I've had like holidays and gone to see family and stuff, and that's been great. It's like a blast from the past. But at the same time, you become very aware that you're no longer you're no longer Jamaican. So you don't say I'm going home. Internally I do, but I also know that I'm not like the people there anymore. Is there a philosophy that you live by? It's, it's really, really funny asking me that because recently I've been reflecting on one I have been living by, like two that I've been living by since graduating from dance school because they brought me where I am. Mm. So one was to be the one who's in the room the longest. Like, if you're the one who's in the room the longest, all the opportunities are going to come to you. Where does that come from? I just made it up. <laughs> well, I think I made, I guess I made it up. I, I never heard it from anywhere else. In terms of, like, career and whatnot, you know, if you're still doing the thing that you do, 
people are going to see you for doing the thing that you do. Even if five years ago you weren't the one to look at, you then become the one to look at. And, and also different people are seeing at different times and your time will come. Well, the next chapter begins. Okay, Akeem, thank you so much thank for joining you. me on I Am An Immigrant. Go see Windows of Displacement, guys. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much to Akeem for the great chat. Do go see his show in August at the festival. And if you can't, check out his website and Instagram. It's all in the show notes. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.